Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This show comes from a special event that we did at the St. Anthony Fall Lock and Dam in Minneapolis. We talked with John Anfinson, superintendent at Mississippi National River and Recreation Area. We spoke with John about the history of the Mississippi River in the area, going as far back as 16,000 years ago and up to the present day. This particular area has meant a lot to many different people, and we also chatted about what the future holds. We recorded this podcast live outside on the actual lock, and so the audio may be a bit, well, there is a lot going on outside, and it was a little windy, so uh, just think of it as a terroir for the audio world. So so thank you so much for being here uh, on this river that you uh, control, that you turn on and off each day. I assume that's your job. I don't know. The Corps of Engineers, you know, owns this lock. They might disagree with how I, who manages the river. So, like, who actually owns this property? I realize there's a whole other show we could do. Uh, let's start. Let's do the history, though, of the the river. And I wanted to try and like zoom back. Uh, I not quite as far as like the Big Bang, but like let's zoom back like sixteen thousand years. So, what what is here sixteen thousand years ago? Before probably most, there were many people here. I assume. A glacier. A glacier. So just a lot of ice. So just, it was, are you just talking about December, January through like May, or was that just permanent? Pretty much year-round. Year-round? Okay, so uh, why is that important that there was a glacier here? Because it, it scraped off about 455 million years of history, of glacial history, and it left us with the geology we now have in the Twin Cities. So, I mean, that's, that's interesting because one of the things that we said, so... This uh, waterfall that's here, this is the only waterfall that is on the Mississippi River. Is that correct? It's the only major waterfall. Okay, so what, what does major mean? Well, <clears throat> I think Little Falls, north of us would be jealous if, if they weren't recognized. Did and... you decide that they were called Little Falls? And you're like, <laughs> we're Major Falls. You're Little Falls. There we go. We can rename it. Yeah. And there's also Pokegama Falls up near the headwaters. And, okay, so, but... This is the only major... I mean, this is the one worth talking about. Right. Um, and so I, I am just, like, help us understand, like, why that happened here. Mississippi is pretty long. You would think there would be something else like this somewhere along the way, but just here. Yeah, so it's the geology of the river, of course. And then about 12,000 years ago, when the glacier started melting, a huge lake formed in Canada called Lake Agassiz, the biggest glacial lake in North America. And it flowed down the Minnesota River into the Mississippi by Fort Snelling. And it flowed on and off at about a million cubic feet per second. We might have about 12,000 cubic feet per second out there right now. So this was like an even bigger, massive river. Much bigger river. And when it came into St. Paul, it cut a new valley. And then it cut down about 100 feet deeper than it is today. And it exposed the limestone, shale, and sandstone. And when the water came over that limestone riverbed and hit that sandstone, it just carved it out. And the limestone edge dropped off. And the the St. Anthony Falls kept backing upstream over 12,000 years until it got to just below here. So, wait, uh, that's confusing. So, the falls moved? Yeah. Like, the waterfall moves? All the way from downtown St. Paul to here. (laughs) So, uh, if we we had set up shop 12,000 years ago, like, these falls would have been St. Paul. Right. We'd have to be over by the airport in downtown St. Paul. Well, that sounds horrible. Um, It would have been about a mile across and 200 feet high. That sounds impressive. Uh, I don't know how to feel about this. Um, so 
we stole the waterfall. Uh, basically, the city of Minneapolis. I do appreciate that you keep using, like, Minneapolis-St. Paul landmarks for 12,000 years ago as though, like, there was just, you know, a mile's worth of water rushing through the city and people were like, oh, God! Um, So, the waterfall moves to here. And then, well, actually, this is a question I didn't think I would have, but are are we done? Is it staying here? Or is it possible it'll keep moving, like, at some point and it'll end up in Mankato eventually? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd have to reverse direction go up the Minnesota River to do that, but <laughs> not likely. So it, right now the St. Anthony Falls is one tick of the geologic clock from ending. Just up by the 3rd Avenue Bridge is the end of that limestone. And from 1874 to 1876, the Army Corps of Engineers built a 36-foot-high dam under the Mississippi to stop the final erosion of the falls. Oh, this is really interesting. Okay, so we'll, uh, that's jumping ahead quite a bit in our timeline. So we'll get to that. That's good. Um, so uh, that's, you know, 12,000 years ago. So we should say, I think probably, uh, unfortunately, I would say, a lot of us probably think about, oh, uh, Father Hennepin discovered, like, the falls. There were, of course, multiple civilizations, multiple tribes and groups of people that were here, that were congregating, particularly at this place, uh, long before European settlers came. So what, what do we know about that part of the history of the river and why this was an important place for those people at that time? So we, we know that there were mammoth hunters here, going back to the Paleo-Indian period. We found these big lancelot points that they made, these spear points for killing mastodons and mammoths and really big animals. We've also found archaic era points, which are from uh, about 5,000 years ago. But the ones we know most about are the Dakota and the Ojibwa. And so the Dakota actually moved into this area. When uh, Hennepin saw them, they actually came down the Mississippi, from the, down the Rum River from Mille Lacs, and then down the Mississippi. And Hennepin discovered uh, Owamina, which was curling water, the name the Dakota had for it. And he names it after his patron, St. Anthony of Padua, the St. Anthony Falls. And the Dakota, actually, their name for the Mississippi River here was Hahawakpa, River of the Falls. I just got, I mean, St. Anthony Falls, but Hahawakpa is like, it has a ring to it that I regret that we don't get to. Also, just anything with haha in it, like, is just fun. Uh, it's more fun in some ways. So, uh, so those tribes were here, and they were, was it like a, were they, was there actually like a lot of commerce and business and stuff that was happening here when the, those tribes were here? Or was it uh, them passing through kind of time to time? Or do we have any sense of that? Well, the, the Mississippi River for American Indians, you know, was their, their supermarket. It was their superhighway. It was everything to them. It wasn't a back door as we treated it for a while. It was their, their front door. They needed it. Um, so we got to... Uh, and I realize that I'm blowing through, like, you know, many thousands of years of history quickly, but it's only a 90-minute show. So uh, so we we have the first European uh, settlers uh, sort of coming here. Father Hennepin is French, correct, and comes here. So, what was Father Hennepin doing, by the way, that he just ended up? I have this notion of him just sort of, like, getting lost and ending up here in the middle of, like, the the continent and being like, ha-ha, now I can name things. Well, he was coming on a voyage of discovery, but also he was a, a priest. He was coming to convert American Indians. He wanted to be the first ones to get here to do it. And he's actually coming up the Mississippi River while the Dakota are going down. And, and down, much further downriver, they encounter each other. And the Dakota take uh, Hennepin and two Coeur d'Ibois, their voyagers, back up. And they stop in St. Paul, and they go up the Phelan Valley to the villages at Mille Lacs Lake. That was in May. 
because they couldn't, they couldn't come up the river in birch bark canoes because the Mississippi drops 110 feet from here to eight and a half miles downstream. So there's a raging rapid. So they didn't even try to come up river. They went up across land. And then in July, they came back down the Rum River from Mille Lacs Lake. And it was coming downstream that Hennepin seized the falls. So what, tell us about that. Like when, when he sees the falls, what does he think uh, at that particular moment? Well, there's a Dakota man offering a, a porcupine quill uh, or a beaver uh, pelt that's decorated white with, with symbols on it and porcupine quills stuck in it. And he's offering sacrifice to the falls for safe passage past the falls and for good fishing and hunting. And so that's what he witnesses when he's here. And so does he realize sort of how special and unique this place is? It sounds like the, the tribes that were here, the, the native people who are here recognize that. Did Father, did, do we have a sense that Father Hennepin did as well? Once he wrote about it and published about it, it became what one writer called a landmark in the wilderness. And from 1680 on, people knew that there was this big waterfall in the heart of the continent. What, who is, so you said Father Hennepin was coming out here to like convert folks and uh, to, to be a discoverer, but then he's, he's like writing travel diaries and like sending them back to us weekly. I'm trying to like... <laughs> well, he, beca- he becomes a big deal in Europe when he starts publishing his account of his trip. And then he modifies it. He originally said St. Anthony Falls was 40 feet high, and then he changed it to say it was 50 feet high, so it was even bigger and more important. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I want to get to this because o- other people are like, I got to see this 40, 50 foot high uh, waterfall that's here. And so who, who kind of starts from the European side coming out here after that? So Jonathan Carver comes in 1766. So that's 10 years before the American Revolution. We have an English colonist here at St. Anthony Falls. And he's coming to tell the French... The British beat them in a war, and they have to leave, and this is British land now. Well, that's a fun job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he gets here, and he says, there's all kinds of eagles' nests at St. Anthony Falls. And the reason for all the eagles' nests were all the fish trying to migrate above the dam. Oh. So there was, he kind of starts describing the ecology of the place. Okay, so he comes along. Eventually, there's another uh, explorer, Zebulon Pike who I feel obligated to bring up because there are so few people named Zebulon. Uh, so what is Zebulon Pike? Who is Zebulon Pike and what does he do when he gets here? So we know about Lewis and Clark heading west with the Louisiana Purchase in 18, as a result of 1803, with that Louisiana Purchase. They head west. <clears throat> Pike is to go north and discover the northern boundary of the United States. So in 1805, he comes up the Mississippi River. And being the engineer he is, he measures the falls. In the precipice of the falls, he measured at 16 and a half feet. So we lost somehow 35 feet of fall, or maybe 45 feet of falls uh, in the course of him measuring. Yeah, and what he says is it took him all day to go from the confluence of the Minnesota Mississippi Rivers to here. And he said that was because it was one continued rapid. He said you really should think of St. Anthony like the falls of the Susquehanna or the Delaware as a continual falls over eight and a half miles. Um so this is interesting, and this is, I, I was recently in New England, and they really, you know, think of their history, uh, as you were talking about, like going back to a colonial era. I mean, we're talking about 10 years before the American Revolution. This is entirely like, you know, uh, wilderness and native land. Uh, still is native land uh and there there wasn't really uh there wasn't any sort of sense of like oh that we're gonna have like a a a city or a state or things here and so when it talked when did when does that sort of start to do folks start to kind of push out this way so pike makes pike signs a treaty with just a few several dakota at 
what becomes Pike Island. And uh, he actually writes in his journal, as you will see, sir, I got it for a song. Ugh. And so I didn't realize that phrase went back that far. Yeah. But, but he got about a 10-mile area along the Mississippi River, anticipating a fort being here and settlement coming. By 1850, so by 1858, that's 1805, by 1858, 53 years later, seamers are coming and going from St. Paul a thousand times a year. A thousand? So there's just that rapid growth over about that 50-year period, that, that rapid period of colonization and, right. like, white settlers coming this way. So, um, so uh, in that period, going back to the river specifically, did folks realize, like, oh, this is, like, a unique asset of this particular area, of all the places potentially to, to set up shop? Well, people recognize the hydropower potential of this site. So 1837, the treaty, first treaty with the Dakota, that gives, the Dakota give up their lands east of the Mississippi here, other side of the river. And there's rumors that this treaty has been signed. So uh, Colonel Plimpton at the fort, he's going to come over here. He's going to establish the first stake, and he's going to own that side of the river and all the money that could come with the milling here. But uh, the sutler or storekeeper, Franklin Steele, beats him to it. He goes in the middle of the night, sets up camp. And so when Colonel Plimpton comes, Steele is already there, and he gets the claim to the east side. It's really hard to like any of these people very much. But uh, so like, I'm, but I'm also trying to figure out, like, the... So you can do a treaty, which is problematic in the first place, but then, nonetheless, somebody literally can go and, like, set up their tent and be like, I got my tents here, and so now I literally have, like, this side of the river? Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that's crazy. Uh, so uh, so how long—so th- then sort of— that those there are the two sides of the river are a couple different treaties that yeah, we Yeah, so 1851 about. Treaty of Mendota is signed, and by 1854, I mean, so right away, people are looking across the river going, how do I make my claim to that side? And so there's some politicians who start working the back rooms and actually get an early claim to the west side, but eventually we have a conglomeration of millers on both sides. Okay, uh, and they were millers. So, because I always had this notion that this was, uh, that uh, early at, at that point, point it was a lot of logging and there was like a lot of like lumber work that was done in northern part of the the territory and then those logs would be sent down here and that was sort of the first thing but was it also flour milling as it was well? primarily lumber, lumber initially, at that point. Uh, 1850s up to about uh, <clears> the <throat> 1890s but by the 1860s the lumber millers start moving north to north minneapolis because they can burn sawdust and make steam and power their generators and they really needed the water power for the flour milling. Okay, so we have lumber milling, sort of first chapter of, and it, it, is this like Minneapolis at, at the at Minneapolis? I believe eighteen fifty seven is when Minneapolis becomes a city. Well, that, Minneapolis, not the eighteen seventies, eighteen seventy, because that's Saint Anthony first, and right. then Minneapolis. Minneapolis on this side, and then they finally merge about 1870s. 1870s. Okay, so uh, lumber, then flour, which, uh, again, we kind of hint, uh, alluded to we're going to be doing a show over at the uh, A-Mill, and we'll probably dig in even more to flour history there. But this this falls becomes, like, central to, like, why we were the mill city. Right. From 1880 to 1930, Minneapolis leads the nation at times the world in flour production. They vie with Budapest, Hungary, as, we the, still leading, do. <laughs> as the leading producer of flour. 
And, and why w- the falls in particular? Is it that it's just because that's like powering everything? Yeah. How? How does it power everything? Water falling creates power. And so, Go on. So, <laughs> I know, it's, it's a funny thing. But so what happened is, so I, I said, Zebby and Pike said the, the river was, uh, or the falls was about 16 and a half feet. The Millers built it up over time, as you can see the horseshoe dam out there. Now it is almost a 50-foot drop due to the fact that the Millers kept building it higher and higher and higher, so they could create more and more power. And then they distribute it through a canal to the mills along the west bank here and then to the Pillsbury A mill and other mills on that side. So uh, they were building up the river at this point. So there is this, like, very important, like, historical point, uh, and maybe we've I, I've jumped past it in our timeline, but they... 1869, we almost destroyed, like, the, the falls entirely. Is that right? Right. There was a guy named William Eastman, and he bought Nicollet Island just up here. He bought Nicollet he Island? He bought Nicollet Island, and under eastern water law, he said he had the first rights of the water, so he accused all the millers downstream of taking his water, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't sue them if they would let him build a tunnel under Hennepin Island, underneath the river, through that really soft sandstone, up to Nicollet Island, where he'd put a mill drop a deep shaft and he'd have his power so he would so <laughs> he sounds like a fun guy uh he his plan was dig a hole then a tunnel and then run water through it in order to power his mill special from all the other mills right right how did that work well he got about two thousand feet up right to the toe of nicollet island and water started leaking into the dam on october 4th 1869 by october 5th there was a 90-foot-wide, 16-and-a-half-foot-high hole under the river, and it collapsed, and it sucked in all the logs nearby. And it said it, one account said it stood them on end as if to, toothpicks and shot them out the end of the tunnel. It just shot them out the end of the tunnel? Yeah, and then after a, a couple of they put a, um, they built a huge raft, and they put, it, put everything they could on it, rocks, stones, everything, and they sank it over the hole. And then one of the newspapers wrote about the triumph of, human engineering over the dumb force of nature. And the next day, there's a sucking sound. It sucked the raft down and shot that out the tunnel. And then there were two more, another hole opened up. And finally, they realized that where the Third Avenue Bridge is was the end of the limestone. And it was starting to come underneath and honeycomb the falls. And had not the Corps built that dam under the river, there would be no St. Anthony. Because it could have, like, just sucked everything else, like, through that tunnel and shot it out. Well, the, the, that soft sandstone underneath the limestone was starting to erode. So they were just, eventually it eroded all the sandstone and the riverbed just would have collapsed and become a more of a rapids. But there had, been, there had been a dam built, and so that was sort of what kept it a falls after well, all The that. dam under the river that was built 1874 to 76 is still there. That's what's still there. That's what's yeah. still there. Uh, okay, I want to do a, a few more uh, history pieces, and I should say, second half of the show, we open it up for you all to ask questions of our guests, so we'll uh, open it up for you all to, to ask some questions here, um, but uh, oh, this is a fun one. So, this is a hydroelectric plant uh, across the river here, right? Right, it's yeah. energy. Uh, and People might know that. I mean, they do a pretty good job of, uh, like, branding it. You can see uh, hydroelectric plant. I feel like people may not know that was the first hydroelectric commercially used uh, plant in the United States, in yeah, the world, it was, maybe. it was on this side. It yeah. was on this side? We moved the- it? No, they, they did it on both sides. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, sure. And, yeah, okay. So, but this was the first one? So, uh, Edison creates the first, uh, in the same year, about the same time, the first electricity to a house but minneapolis does the first commercial hydroelectric power to a business 
Wow. And was that was that a big deal? I assume it must have been they, a big they, deal. Yeah, they had a, they built a huge tower over here near here and they put a light at the top of it and they powered it and it lit up the whole area. Wow. Uh Okay, so, so that's one. Uh, I also, talking more about the construction, the things that we built, we are on a lock and dam. How did we end up with all these lock and dams uh, all up and down the, this part of the river? So from, especially right here in the, in the yeah. heart of the Twin Cities, the Mississippi drops, like I said, 110 feet from above St. Anthony Falls to the mouth of the Minnesota River. And that the gorge is below us, and it's a very tight, narrow canyon, tightest, narrowest canyon on the river and the river drops 110 feet through it, you just couldn't take a steamboat up. In 1858, like I said, steamboats came and went from St. Paul a thousand times and only 50 times from Minneapolis. Oh. Because they, they tried to pay one steamboat to come up, but there was a boat called the Fanny Harris that made it up, and on the way down, it had two wing rudders and one of those limestone boulders that had collapsed the river knocked off the wing rudder. There was a special rapids pilot on the boat. He panicked and left the wheel, but there were two older pilots in the back, and one of them got up and took the wheel. And he said, had I not taken the wheel, we would have been smashed to kindlings. And they didn't tell the engineer in the boiler room because he said they needed a full head of steam to wind through the current in the, in the boulders in the river. Okay, so uh, because of um, cowardly steamboat drivers, we needed a lock and dam system uh, <laughs> to, to get folks up here uh, to, to Minneapolis at that time. Yeah, we needed to get above the falls where it's the Prairie River and there's a lot of flat land above here. And then you could have a big port. You could have a, a big port for boats to stop at. And so this is a thing uh, people also may not realize is that we have a port in Minneapolis, or we did until very recently. Uh, what was the idea of having a port in Minneapolis? Well, Minneapolis uh, had the milling, so it was known worldwide for milling. But St. Paul was the head of navigation. And Minneapolis wanted to be the head of navigation, too. They wanted to be that bookend to New Orleans. So they... Um, they wanted to get navigation above the falls, and they thought if they could do that, they would vie with St. Paul and for the head of navigation. And so, and, and so then we, I, I've always heard this described as like Hubert Humphrey's boondoggle, like uh, the port of Minneapolis, that he was like, I'm going to build a port uh, when he was mayor. And he had like big eyes, and he was like, yes, uh, there's nothing that I want more than a port. Um, and, but I, you were telling me earlier, maybe that is more complicated. Yeah, Henrik Shipstead actually got the Upper Harbor Terminal Project authorized in 1937, but then the Great Depression and the World War II delayed it, and so it was in the 1950s, probably when Humphrey is going to play a role in getting funding to get it finally built. Okay, so we build a port. People may not know that we had a port, which actually we've basically now just shut down uh, just within the last couple of years. Why did Minneapolis's port never work out? The, the barges that came through this lock and dam, there's usually two barges at a time with a towboat. And that was all we saw. And, and for a while it was somewhat successful, but toward the end it was two uh, gravel barges a day, or four gravel barges with two towboats a day, one scrap metal barge every few days. Whereas at Hastings downstream here, they can bring in a 15-barge tow, break it in half, they bring it through in two sections. That 15-barge tow equals 870 semi-trucks. So compared to the two barges that were coming through here versus the big dams downstream, it, it just never succeeded here because it didn't have the economies of scale, we call it. And, uh, and is that just because of the way the river is here? It's such a narrow river through here. Those big towboats couldn't have come up the gorge. And Lock and Dam 1 was actually built in 1917, and it, it kind of set the size of the lock for up here. Um, 
We are, so the port is closed. There's a lot of discussions going on now about what the future of that part of the Mississippi will be uh, for the city and the people who live there. Uh, there's talk about this specific place that we're on. There's a lot of talk about, I mean, look at, there's all these people out enjoying, like, the riverfront here. And we think of this, I think, now, it's like, this is a place for recreation and to come out and to be by the water. I'm wondering if that was historically true. Like, did, was this always sort of like, there were people who would come out and, um, you know... Velosa bikes, those big bikes with like one giant tire in the front, and they would like roam around like here uh, and you know push a wheel with a stick and uh, I don't know what else like as fun a uh, hundred years ago. Or is this a more modern phenomenon? Well, there there was a time before all the milling really took over and made this an industrial area, where Easterners would come to the Mississippi River and take a steamboat, or Southerners would get on a steamboat and they come up here. Because they wanted to see Fort Snelling, and they wanted to see Minnehaha Falls, and they wanted to see St. Anthony Falls. So they went on something called a fashionable tour. Fashionable so, tour. Yeah, it was a, that was the name of it. That's good advertising, I guess, yeah. Yes. So what, describe a fashionable tour. I've never been on one. Um, so what, what was one? Well, you'd basically get on a steamboat, and you'd come up to St. Paul, and you couldn't get up further on this than that, for the most part. So you'd get a rent-a-buggy or a driver, a maybe the early equivalent of Uber left, and you just get a ride up here and see the falls and see Minnehaha Falls and Fort Snelling. Did this happen a lot, or is this one of these things where, like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's second cousin did it once, and so we just know about it? No, a lot of people did it. It was, a, you know, it's hard to think of this as a major vacation destination yes, before is. Minnesota's even a state. Yeah, but it was. It people was. people yeah. came a lot for this. Okay. It was a vacation destination. Um, so... I'm hoping there'll be some questions about this in the second half, but these locks and dams, how, uh, how many actually are in Minneapolis? Is it four? Three. three. Three are in Minneapolis, and they're all three closed now. One, this one is closed permanently. Lower St. Anthony, about a quarter mile below us, is still open at times. And then further downstream, about five miles, is uh, Lock and Dam 1 or the Ford Dam, and that still does some recreational traffic. That does some recreational But this one's closed permanently. Exactly. And the... Notion for closing this permanently was there were invasive fish that were coming up the river in part, right? It was that sort that of that was just... the trigger. But okay. as a historian, I always look for the underlying causes and the economics. The feeling of the economics was the underlying reason, and that trigger was the Asian carp. Okay, and so the the notion was if we close the lock and dam, hopefully the carp won't go farther up the river. Yeah, this was the only way they could get by this point. They can't swim. Up that dam. I feel like that is a challenge for. There's like literally carp in the river right now. Thinking, oh yeah, just wait. Uh, We're gonna figure this out. Yeah, Uh, I just, I just. We know they're here. We don't know how many, but I just saw a figure that there's twenty thousand Asian carp per mile on the Missouri River. Wow, and that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. Uh, Could we just learn to love Asian carp? You know, it's uh, silver and big head carp are the most eaten fish in the world. China and India, they eat them a lot. But we don't. We here don't. In, the in US. fact, they've almost eradicated them in China. They're trying to get. They're trying to regrow them. Oh wow! That's so. That's interesting. Um, so uh, just to talk though quickly about like, so what do we do with this lock and dam then? Uh, other than improv comedy shows, <laughs> that's one thing that could be in the future. Yeah. So, you know, there's a Corps of Engineers that's doing a disposition study. They're looking. They said, imagine this with a for sale sign on it, big for sale sign. Anybody want to buy a lock and dam? You can have it. Same with Lower St. Anthony and Lock and Dam 1. Since this one's closed, they really don't need the other two anymore. So they're looking at disposing of or getting rid of all three. And so they're doing a study. There'll be actually a um, public meeting from 6 o'clock to 8 
o'clock next Monday at the Dowling School in Minneapolis to talk about how they're going to do this study and maybe about the future. There's one organization, Friends of Lock and Dam, that's already envisioning a world-class visitor center at this site, rebuilding it and redoing it. Uh, and so this is a place where people will be able to, well, I mean, will there literally be a for sale sign? Like could like somebody, as we saw before, like say, I'm going to buy this and then dig a tunnel under the river uh, and nothing can possibly go wrong. Or, right. it, well, if, if no one wants this, there's no adaptive reuse. The Corps will try transfer this to the General Service Administration, which disposes of excess property for the federal government. That sounds so cryptic. Uh, so, but hopefully, the theory is this will become something new, and this is where you're looking for like general public input on this. Yeah, and then the Corps is going to do that first. This one first. The next two. There's real uh, debate that's going to happen about whether those two dams will be removed or not and the rapids restored to the river. But that's going to wait a year or two. What do you want this to be? We want to do some good studies and get some good science. Oh, come on. What do you want, John? (laughs) John, you you have a sketchbook somewhere of what this place could be. Well, I know what it was. And and what I I say about this is, this is a good way way to put it, this lock is the concrete embodiment of the visions of people in the past. So are the other two. Do we hold to those same visions and want those same things that people in the past who made this happen, or do we want something different? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Okay, I'm going to try and pin him down more on this after the (laughs) break, but for now, can we do a tremendous round of applause? John Anfinson, everybody. So he and I are going to... We got... Uh, oh, we have uh, we have folks with questions. But I have one uh, that I'm going to ask first because I forgot to ask this in the first part of it. But So we talked about um, the river uh, culturally, uh, as geologically, in terms of a lot of things. One thing we didn't get to, though, is just uh, the fact the river wa- is a source of water, which we drink, uh, which is important. And it's also... Uh, been a place that we used as sort of a sewage system. Seems like those two things together are not good. This is topical. Uh, so I'm curious, like, um, uh, can you just, how, how is that, have we always used the river uh, as sort of a, a drinking source when, as we built the city up? Or so, so as Minneapolis grew, it went to the Mississippi River for its water supply. And as St. Paul grew, it went to a lake system north. Because Minneapolis could just use the river that was right here and let gravity bring the water down. In St. Paul, they had to pump it out of the river valley and up, which would have been really expensive. But we used about two to three gallons of water a day before we um, got piped in water. Once you get piped in water, you go to 50 to 100 gallons. And so once you put 50 to 100 gallons into your outhouse or cesspool, it starts overflowing. And so you have to actually build a sewer system. And when they started building the sewer system in Minneapolis, they funneled it right to the river. But they also started building... So it's a circular system. Yeah, right? so they started... Actually, the first waterworks was on this side. And when that one got uh, <clears throat> a little outdated, they built the second one over here on Hennepin Island. And then they just took in water directly right here, and they pumped it into your house or your business, unfiltered, untreated. And so what happened with Minneapolis is typhoid fever epidemic started getting worse and worse and worse as the city grew and Aetna Insurance Company came out here and they they wanted to debate between Minneapolis and St. Paul and who's who would be easier to insure, cheaper to insure and St. Paul said, well our water is so much better, we have less typhoid, we're cheaper to insure and Minneapolis said anybody who can afford insurance doesn't drink the river's water. Burn! Uh, (laughs) 
So, uh, did, so did we ever figure this out? We did after the 1910 epidemic, and we realized that um, a city, Jersey City, New Jersey, had developed chlorination and realized chlorination actually worked to clean up water. And we started emergency chlorination here, and and that was uh, what ended basically typhoid in cities around the country was filtration and chlorination. So, and I believe is it correct? We still do have that system where we take water out of the Mississippi and. Our sewage does go back into the Mississippi, but we treat it a lot before we put it back in, I believe. Yeah, all, everybody li- who lives in Minneapolis drinks Mississippi River water. About a quarter of St. Paul's water comes from Mississippi. But the Pig's Eye Sewage Treatment Plant in uh, St. Paul handles all the sewage. And I've heard it said that the water that we actually treat and put into the river is actually, it ends up, we treat it so much it ends up being technically cleaner or like has less bacteria and whatnot in it than just the river water to start with. Which is a statement about how we treat the river. Yes, that's a good note. All right, so uh, I promise uh, this is the part where we are going to uh, ask you or come for your questions. I'm going to come as far as I can. With my leash. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, if you have a question, uh, I will reward you with a sticker. Okay, so uh, you have a question? How convenient. You're so close. Have a sticker. Uh, here's a microphone as well. All right. What happens in the laboratory just uh, across the river? So the St. Anthony Falls Hydraulic, the Hyd- Hydraulics and Hydrology Laboratory is one of the premier world institutions for studying how rivers move sediment and how water moves underwater, basically. They study, uh, like New York Harbor was trying to figure out how to deal with sediment and its water intakes in New York Harbor. They were modeling it here at St. Anthony. They modeled the Elwha Dam in the Olympic Peninsula removal. They had a big model of the Elwha Dam, and they're modeling dam removal there. They work on projects worldwide. Wow. Does that answer? Okay. Uh, Other questions? Yes, right here. And then I might have to get you to shout back there, but here you Good evening. Good evening. Um, so I just think it's really remarkable that a city of this size relies on fresh water um, as opposed to groundwater. And I'm very curious um, if you know of um, kind of the, the, the state of the health of the river now, um, especially, you know, given that it is our drinking water in Minneapolis, like... Um, what is the potential of threat from pipeline projects such as Line 3 um, and or like salination that is happening from how much we salt our roads? Are there things that I'm not mentioning that are like more front and center in the mind of folks who are talking about the health of the river? I'm very curious. Yeah, that's a great question. I trust everybody heard about what's the, what's the state of the river today health-wise, you know, and the river out here is impaired at times for bacteria. If it hasn't rained for a while and we haven't flushed all the streets into the uh, storm sewers into the river here, um, it can actually be as clean as one of the lakes. You can actually go swimming. We had uh, Mayor Fry out um, up in Brooklyn Center uh, in a kayak, and he just jumped right into the river and started swimming around. So, I mean, he's trusting it was pretty clean. So, it's not too bad, but from a, wa- from a drinking water perspective, we have to really consider what's coming in. Right now, it's not bad. I actually asked the, the, the water treatment plant if they were worried about new pollutants coming in, and they said, no, we can handle pretty much anything they put in the river, which was kind of worrisome to me. Yeah, that seems like fateful last words. Like, uh, I, I mean, to kind of put... so. I imagine they, they might say, yes, we can handle any pollutants, because they're imagining sort of 
maybe more of what we have now. Right. But I mean, part of the question was, you know, what if something major, like catastrophic, like oil spills kind of thing happens? Yeah, there's railroad bridges that cross this river. If a tank car went off in the river and put a massive amount of some pollutant in, what would that mean? And so we have to we have to think about that. And there's actually emergency procedures in place for something like that, where they would shut down the system. And Minneapolis can go to some groundwater, but not for very long. Because we just don't have enough of it here? Right. Or, or, or... It's really, really hard water as well. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for coming up here. Uh... What's the typical lowest cubic feet per second and highest in a, in a typical year? And in, like, the last 10 years, what's the greatest flow we've had in the river? Do you know? Well, let me get my phone out. Now, I need a lifeline here, I think. Now, normally, it's actually been really high since uh, we took over management about four years ago. Um, you know, in the spring, you might see 35,000 cubic feet per second, which would be really high. Um, it can get down as low as 5,000, 3,000 cubic feet per second, where there's just uh, hardly anything going over. In fact, I saw a picture from right after this opened with three kids sliding down the spillway, and there's almost no water on it. I think they put an end to that pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, the flood of record is the 1965 flood when it was about 93,000 cubic feet per second. And it actually led to, started a road, one of the piers in the Stone Arch Bridge. And if you look along the line of limestone in the Stone Arch Bridge out here, you see a little dip by one of the piers. That's where one of the piers started sinking on the Stone Arch Bridge. Would the gorge down by Lock and Dam Number 1 uh, turn into just a weedy uh, trough for some low-flow summers? So, so, what, so what happens when a really, really low flow happens? These are reservoirs, so they're like lakes. And basically, the lower it gets, the more water the core held back because they wanted it for navigation. So at Lock and Dam 1, it's actually a fixed crest spillway. So it just, whatever comes in goes over it. So um, it basically becomes a, a stagnant lake is what happens. So may, that was actually maybe alluded, what I wanted to ask as a follow-up, which is, I mean, it's fascinating, 5,000 cubic per minute versus 90,000. Those are numbers. Uh, but what, why, why does that matter? Why do we care what the sort of flow rate is? Well, the higher the flow, I mean, when it gets to these really high levels, it can cause actually uh, damage downriver. At 50,000 cubic feet per second, and it's happened six times since this lock opened in 1963, the core opens that upper gate, and there's a, a gray gate up there, and they pass water through the lock. Oh. About 15,000 cubic feet per second just goes right through this lock. So in order to, like, lessen the pressure? It's because of... it, then it reduces water upstream because it can do some flooding upstream if they don't. Okay. All right. Okay, that's good. Uh, other questions? Yeah, you have a question right there. Do you mind coming just... I'm a little short here, but so if you don't mind coming up this far. Is, 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 there, um, is there something that blocks the canoes from going... Um, over the waterfall? Oh, that is a great question. Here, have a sticker. Wait, no, get a sticker. Uh, is there something that blocks the canoes from going over the waterfall? I'm sure he's not asking in hopes that he will get to go over the waterfall, <laughs> but... No, actually, if you come down in a boat from the upstream and start, if you lost power with a speedboat, for example, and you started heading toward the falls, there's a rope all the way across the river up there that I hope you could catch and hang on to till someone could come and get you. Because you really don't want to go over this falls. And can you just, just I mean, uh, yeah, so. And people have. 
a rope. A, a cable. There's a cable. Oh, oh yeah, I was worried before, but a cable. <laughs> well, then, I'm totally cool. Um, just to, like, paint, like, let's just give people, like, the thrill. What happens if you do go over the falls? What is that experience like? So if you, if you got to go out there and look at it, you see it kind of does a jump at the bottom. It jumps up. That's because there's these huge concrete uh, blocks that are about this wide and that long, and they come to a point like a home base. They're called energy dissipators because if the water just went right down the, the spillway, it would scour out a hole, and the toe of the dam would fall into it. So <clears throat> if you went down that waterfall and you hit one of those concrete blocks, it wouldn't be very good. So it's basically a giant, like, Plinko game going down the falls, like where you, like, go down one of the chute if you're water. Uh, versus if you're in a canoe. Yeah, you'd want to hit the gap if you're going Either down. Yeah. yeah, okay. Aim for the gap. Uh, <laughs> all right, did you have a question? Yeah. I was just curious how far you're responsible for, how far down the river, and then what entities are watching out for the river or who who's accountable for the river as it goes, you know, through Iowa and all the way down to New Orleans? So there are lots and lots and lots of government agencies. So my national park unit is 72 miles long from the top of Hennepin County where the Crow River comes in to the bottom of Dakota County. There's 54,000 acres within our boundary. We own 64 of those. It's 25 communities, five counties. So we're a very different kind of park. So that's our the area that we try to protect and preserve the nationally significant resources in. We're the only national park about the Mississippi. So the Corps of Engineers has jurisdiction for what it does along the whole river, from the headwaters to where it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service has dozens of refuges up and down the Mississippi. And then state DNRs and Department of Natural Resources and others work on the river. So, you know, I'd I'd say there's lots and lots of agencies working. Sometimes we don't always talk to each other, and that's what we need to do better. Is that unusual for this section of the river? Because part of this question, I think, was, is that is, if we kept going down the river, would we find similar setups, you know, all the way along down the river, all the way till it got out into the Gulf of Mexico, just with, you know, different states and cities, but similarly, multiple federal agencies all connected in the along the spaces? Oh, absolutely. Yep. So... That actually is a good segue into, we were talking a little bit about this, uh, this particular place, the Lock and Dam, and I alluded to this a little, but that multiple government agencies is part of the conversation here, too, right? Because this structure is an Army Corps of Engineers structure, but you are, you are sort of the ringmaster of these, this area with the National Park Service, but then obviously the, the city has some interest here, and I imagine fish and wildlife, obviously. So uh, are you all talking to each other? What is that Thanksgiving dinner like? <laughs> it's great. So when, the, when this closed in 2015 to, to navigation, the Corps approached the National Park. They approached me and said, would you take over visitor management here because we don't want to do, do it anymore. It's not open. And I thought about a nanosecond, and, you know, why wouldn't the na- There are probably five places in the whole Mississippi of this significance, and, and how could we not say no to it? And so I made Dan and my other rangers and other, everybody else, Katie over there with the Mississippi Park Connection, figure out, and our volunteers, how are we going to staff this? We'll figure that out. But I said yes anyway, and we've done it, and it's been a, it's been a fantastic uh, journey to figure this out. And so now we're all working together to think about 
what could this place really be five years from now, ten years from now? What was the most surprising thing in the time that you've been in charge of this for you? How few people have been out here and seen it. The Corps of Engineers was averaging about 2,000 people a year out here. We did over 1,700 people on Saturday of Aquitennial. Wow, that's great. That's good. That's good. That's a applause line. Okay, uh, time for other questions. Yes, uh, I, I'm going to give this person a chance because... Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the history of the railroad and this special bridge? And then also, there's trivia. I've heard a re- I've heard reason why the bridge is curved. But if... if are you, you going to... Uh, you're going to give him a chance well, to know the trivia. Okay, uh, here. Well, tell us about the history of the railroad. Yeah. How long do you have? <laughs> Actually, I'm weak on the history. Thank goodness there's a sign on the bridge that says 1883 right over the arch where you come under. So James J. Hill built this in 1883 because he was part owner of the Pillsbury A-Mill, and he wanted to get wheat from western Minnesota to the Pillsbury A-Mill. And so that was one of the reasons it was built. As to the curve of it, um, I I imagine it had something to do with you just couldn't do it a line straight across the river over the A-mail in the, in the east side of the river. So I don't know the exact details. What I heard was that it was curved, so when the passengers were coming across, passengers on both sides of the train got a chance to see the beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I, I would guess, that, I mean, that's a great story, but, but I would guess engineers who built it were probably a little more practical. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> um, ooh. Another sticker. Okay, I, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> one for each. Um, I really enjoyed your uh, point, your musing about um, this place representing what um, what past generations have envisioned here and and thinking do we want anything different and kind of to that point I'm really curious if um, what involvement local tribes have had in envisioning what the future of this place will be um, yeah that's the essence of the question yeah so the Corps of Engineers is kicking off this disposition study as a federal agency they are required to coordinate with federally recognized tribes in in this area and they do that on projects throughout the five states that they work in. We coordinate with tribes as a federal agency whenever we deal with tribes in this area. So it's, uh, there's rules, regulations, management policies that require us to work with tribes. And so, and, and up front and, and early and often. So the Corps of Engineers, I assume, has already begun that outreach process with the, with the tribes. I know that when we, when we coordinate our projects here, we contact 22 tribes and we've contacted up to 50 at times. And maybe this is a helpful moment to just say a little bit more about, I'm sure we all already know what a disposition study is, but uh, if you could just help, like maybe, what what is this process actually look like? You, you mentioned there's a, some community meetings coming up and then wh- what happens? What, 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 what do we do? So what the Corps is going to look at, they actually started this study last year, but then a new act passed Congress and they added, added a new piece to it. So They look at no action. What if we just keep doing what we're doing and don't do anything? That's the no action plan. That sounds like Congress. Okay, (laughs) go on. Um. The other one is disposition disposal. Imagine the for sale sign. They want to get rid of this. Every dollar they spend here is a dollar 
that doesn't help navigation. They want to spend the money where navigation is downstream. So that's what they were trying to do. But um, Friends of Lock and Dam and others got a, a new act passed, provision and act that said the Corps actually has to entertain proposals for how we might reuse this site. And so now the Corps is going to study what, um, what could happen here. What In the city of Minneapolis has passed a resolution based on a letter from Senator Smith and Senator Klobuchar saying they want to see, they got this provision added to law because they want to see something happen here that's new and different. And so the Corps is trying to figure out what that means and how they do it. And you've described potentially world-class visitor center. So, I mean, again, I know that there's a lot of this. I'm a, I mean, in part of this, I've got to imagine history is a big part of this. Some of the, the culture pieces that we've talked about tonight, the, both the geological history, the uh, First Nations that were here, the uh, industrial history, that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know, what else are people talking about already? They're talking about all of those things right now. And we're talking about, well, how much can we do here? This is St. Anthony Falls Historic District. We have some really iconic uh, structures here, the Stone Arch Bridge and, and, and the waterfalls. So what do we even want to build here? How big could it be what, before it actually disrupted the setting? So there's some really important conversations we have to have about what can happen here and what it might impact. Okay, so uh, we're just about out of time. I kind of want to, folks have come out. We had this wonderful, like, uh, entreaties, like, uh, at the beginning. Folks should know now they can come back here. They can come here or whatnot. But what else do you want people, you know, hopefully folks are going to go home and uh, tell people, I went to this thing at the the Lock and Dam, and uh, what, though, are you hoping folks take home from this, maybe share with folks about this place and this thing and this whole scene that we are in right now yeah so so you're in one of the most spectacular places in the whole mississippi geologically historically economically um there there is so much here that we've already talked about tonight so it's one of the most important places on the whole river everything we've ever done on the river this lock and dam the locks and dams downstream the creation of my national park unit the creation of fish and wildlife refuges Every one of those things is happening because citizens like you exercise their voice. So there's a chance for you to exercise your voice again and decide the future of the Mississippi River at these three sites within the heart of the Twin Cities. And so, you know, I would say just get engaged in the conversation. Be a part of that conversation so that in the future what we have is what we of this generation at this time in the 21st century want on that very inspiring f- note, please, one more time, a round of applause, John Amphison. Wow, that was great. Okay. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. The series was hosted by Mississippi Park Connection, the Mississippi Watershed Management Organization, Mill City Museum, and the National Park Service at St. Anthony Falls Visitor Center. The series is made possible in part by the St. Anthony Falls Heritage Board, with sponsorship in part by Prize Brewing.